Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Danny Ramadan. He is the award-winning Syrian-Canadian author, storyteller, and LGBTQ refugee activist. His new book is The Foghorn Echoes, which is published by our friends at Canongate. Danny, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It is an honor to have you here, Danny. And before we dive into your excellent novel, The Foghorn Echoes, I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about your work as an LGBTQ refugee activist. What does that entail? Mm-hmm. So I arrived to Canada in 2014 as one of the very first uh, Syrian refugees to come during the civil war. Uh, as well as one of the first queer Syrian refugees to come here to Canada. And um, I I felt quite um, disconnected, I have to say, because I left a lot of my uh, familiars, my friends, and my uh, the familiar world around me. And, and I came into a strange new world, which felt uh, quite disconnecting, I have to say. Uh, so I started this um, small little thing where I fundraise for an organization called Rainbow Refugee Society uh, to bring folks like me to Canada. And I started this event called An Evening in Damascus where I cook Syrian food and uh, invite people over and raise some funds. Um, The event went uh, quite successfully and uh, it has been uh, going on for eight years now. We raised over $300,000 for Syrian refugees and uh, we brought here to Canada over 18 people in the last uh, eight years. Um, I'm very proud of the work that I do with Rainbow Refugee. It is it is my side project that I do on the, on the corner of my desk right there. Um, and it means a lot to me as well that I present and it means a lot to me that, that I represent uh, the, the Syrian culture for folks outside of the headlines and the um, the main stories that you hear and read on the Washington Post, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Danny, and thanks for doing that uh, important work. Now let's dive into your novel, The Foghorn Echoes. First, uh, can you take a moment to set this novel up for our listeners? Mm-hmm. So the Foghorn Echoes follows the story of uh, two boys, uh, Hussam and Wasim. Uh, the first chapter opens with them um, as teenagers in Damascus back in 2003, fascinated with the war happening next door in Iraq, but also fascinated with each other. They end up um, acting on their feelings to one another, and that ends up in a massive tragedy. Uh, The novel picks up then uh, in alternating uh, chapters between Damascus and Vancouver. Hossam is living his best gay life um, in in Vancouver and um, navigating his trauma with sex, drugs, and alcohol, while Wasim is now homeless in Damascus, and he's dealing with his trauma by um, inverting upon himself and, and searching for questions internally. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, As you mentioned, this book takes place in Syria and Canada. 
and you are a Syrian Canadian author. How closely does this story mirror your personal experiences, if at all? Mm -hmm. I think I think I'm way more interested in what is real over what is true. Mm. Let me actually rephrase that. I think mm -hmm. I think I'm way more interested in what is true rather than what is real. It is not the reality of my life that I try to represent on the uh, on the pages, but the truth of what it means to be a queer Syrian refugee. Uh, the book has ghosts and um, and it has a bit of a magical element. And I, I I wish I've met a ghost in my life. I've never met a ghost in my life, but um, but at the same time, I think it was inspired by the the disorientation that I felt when I came to Canada. It was inspired by the uh, bright lights of Vancouver and the the challenges that I faced personally in. Um, in Syria as a queer man growing up in a homophobic society. Absolutely. Thank you. And um, I want to come back to ghosts later. But first, uh, Danny, one thing that you write about on the very first page of your novel is that teachers in the schools in Syria substituted physical education classes for military preparation sessions. They had these military preparation sessions instead of gym classes. Um, I think this type of thing happens in schools um, far more than Americans and maybe Canadian uh, citizens realize um, elsewhere out there in the world. Uh, I know that China has a robust military preparation program in their public schools. Can you tell us a little bit about schools that teach military preparation to kids and what this does to the psyches of children in these countries and the psyches of the nations in general? Mm -hmm. That's a very interesting question. I've never been asked that before. Um, so I grew up with military preparation classes. So back in the 90s, uh, when I grew up in Damascus, um, a very normal session that is weekly is military preparation, where a military officer usually um, uh, comes in and teaches how, how to load and unload a gun, how to uh, practice shooting, uh, how to create um, a gas mask. Um, but also that is not the only time where uh, militarism was uh, part of our education. Uh, so I grew up wearing um, to school a military outfit. Our our uniform looks very similar to the uniform of um, uh, a soldier. Uh, we grew up with a lot of um, hierarchy that is very similar to military hierarchy, where um, the way that we navigate the world is soldier-like. Soldier and I think it was meant to streamline my thoughts, to brainwash me into believing in the uh, in the Syrian propaganda. Um, I'm one of the lucky ones who did not fall for that. And I see that um, that that those actions and how they changed the minds and how they changed the psyche of a lot of my fellow Syrians, um, because it's meant to create to make you into a follower. It's meant to create um an individual of you that is identical to everybody else around them. It's, it's, hmm. it's actually quite funny because I think my queerness saved me from that because I didn't believe of myself as an individual that is identical to everybody around me. 
And just the fact that I went through um, growing up as a gay man in Syria and feeling uh, disillusioned by the society around me, I think helped me break away from that brainwashing system that um, that I grew up within. So I guess I'm happy to be gay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good for you for circumventing that um, that brainwashing there. Um, Danny, what might our listeners be surprised to learn about the perception of the American military in Syria, both presently and historically? Hmm. I think your listeners would be surprised to realize that the image that Syrians hold in regard to America is not as positive as you might think. Um, the war, the, the civil war in Syria started in 2011 and it started as a revolution. And um, we, we asked for aid and support from the uh, from powers of the world, like the US, like the UK, against the dictatorship that has been killing our people for the last um, 40, 50 years until we revolted. And we did not receive the support um, uh, on the ground. We received a lot of verbal support. We received a lot of uh, thoughts and prayers, but we did not receive uh, a support that allowed us to reach the democracy that you promised us, basically. Um, I think in our day and age, we live in a world where um, many nations around the world are trying to reach this, this perfect image of, of how we navigate our politics, we navigate each other, we navigate our, um, our differences and, and the way that uh, we are similar. And it is, it is quite easy to think of a person who's different than you as the enemy. And Syrians and, and Americans might be uh, facing that challenge when you're talking about folks who are still in Syria. A lot of folks who came to North America, like myself, start to see the complexity of the, the North American politics and start to, to stand on um, more of a gray area in understanding that world. Um, but folks in Syria who have been suffering under a civil war for 11 years um, looked up for the Americans and asked for help and did not receive it. So that is that is something that... Um, that we hold you accountable for, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think anyone listening will be surprised to learn that um, thoughts and prayers were substituted for uh, actual physical action. Uh, well, thank you so much, Danny. Listeners, we are going to take a short break here for a word from our sponsors. And then I will be right back with Danny Ramadan. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. 
With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Danny Ramadan, author of The Foghorn Echoes, which is published by our friends at Canongate. Danny, uh, I told you before the break that we would come back to this, and I want to talk about genre for a moment. Mm-hmm. My question for you is, is this book, The Foghorn Echoes, a ghost story? And if so, uh, where is your book positioned in the canon of literary ghost stories? Mm. Um, I don't think of the Foghorn Echoes as a ghost story, to be honest. It has ghosts in it, two of them, but I don't think of it as a ghost story. I thought of it as uh, literary fiction where I am telling um, a story about trauma and I have represented that trauma in two ghosts that are haunting the uh, two main characters. And I think uh, the book has a lot of uh, themes to navigate like like trauma, uh, what kind of responses trauma uh, causes people to to act upon. So one of the two characters is the the flight where he, they are escaping from all of their traumatic past, while the other is the fight. They are fighting every instinct that um, uh, for their existence, hoping that they will uh, overcome their trauma. Um, there's also the concept of war. Uh, these characters are fighting each other. They are fighting. They're having wars within themselves. Uh, they're navigating the world around them. Uh, all of that speaks to uh, a literary work of fiction, which is uh, where I would say my genre are, uh, is. It's also interesting because I don't think of including magical elements. Um, the Latin Americans call this magic uh, magic realism. I don't think of including it, magic elements into my storytelling as something that would push it into the magic realism or the ghost story. I think of it as um, part of my heritage. Many of the stories that are Syrian are by nature filled with ghosts and ghouls and angels and witches. It is the kind of storytelling that we do back in Syria. It's the kind of stories that we like to hear. So, um, so I think I think it's definitely it's definitely not a ghost story in the traditional sense. It's more of a story where trauma represented itself in ghosts. Yeah, absolutely. And I would um, perhaps draw a parallel to books like Beloved by Toni Morrison or Lincoln in the Bardo by George Saunders, which feature ghosts are no one would ever call it anything other than literary fiction, but some may also call them ghost stories. Um, Well, thank you so much, uh, Danny. Early in this novel, Sam's father admonishes his young son by saying, quote, men don't cry, son, uh, unquote. Uh, what does this tell us, Danny, about Hassam's father? And do you feel uh, like this is a healthy parental attitude uh, for a father to have towards one's son? Mm-hmm. We are going vulnerable. Um, I grew up with a very masculine-leaning father. My father is um, uh, a working-class, poor um, parent, uh, who thought of um, who thought of masculinity as as the way that men should grow up to be, um, and I I blamed him for that for years. I feel like there was uh, there were parts of who I am that were extremely feminine when I was growing up. That my father worked really hard on erasing. 
whether by um, um, talking me through them or sending me to boxing classes or uh, forcing me into a religious school. All of that was his attempts to erase the feminine side of me. Um, and when I was younger, when I was in my 20s, I blamed him for that, that's for sure. But I think I have reached a point right now when I think about it um, from a bird's eye view. Mm. Um, my father grew up in a society with a religion, with a law, where everything valued masculinity. And in a twisted, bad way, he was trying to give me that privilege. He was trying to raise me to be... Uh, masculine and therefore appreciated and valued in my society, in my religion, in, amongst my people. Um, so in a way, he was trying to help me. And and of course, by saying this, I'm not justifying his actions, and therefore I'm not justifying the actions of the father in the in the novel. I just think that complexity, understanding people from the complex backgrounds. Um, allows us to see their actions um, much more clearly and see their own trauma that they're passing down to us. My father grew up with the same messaging from his father who grew up with the same messaging from his father. And I think, um, I think I'm happy that I'm ending this traumatic lineage in with, with myself, that that is not something that I'm passing down to a next generation. Um, and I'm also I'm also aware of the challenges um, a man of the father's generation in my book had gone through. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Danny. Um, moving on to another topic in the USA, uh, there have been moments in history when violence in video games has become a hot button issue. How does Syrian society reconcile strict adherence uh, to Islam and things of that nature with a video game like Mortal Kombat 3, which our young characters are playing at the beginning of this novel? In other words, yeah. is violence more acceptable uh, in a Syrian society than it has been at times here in the United States? Um, I... I... <laughs> Again, another question that I've never heard before. So that is uh, that is very interesting. Um, I think the idea that connects video games into violence is very um, outdated from my perspective. I think video games are catalysts for a lot of folks to find uh, solace and find uh, empowerment because they feel... Um, power on the screen as they're pressing buttons that they didn't feel in their day-to-day -day life. Um, and I think that that um, growing up in Syria, there's definitely sites of violence that I saw every day. Um, soldiers walking around with big guns, um, uh, military presence everywhere, uh, stories of violence. But I think the U.S. is going through the same thing. I think there's a lot of people with guns walking around uh, the United States. There are a lot of stories of violence that we hear every single day on the media. And and I, I would like to do that disconnection between video games and violence because I, I am, I'm, a, I'm a gamer 
and I love video games and I, I will always have a mention of video games in my books um, because they gave me power at a time that I didn't feel powerful at all. And, um, and yeah, I think, I think that connection between actual physical real life violence and video games that are just trying to entertain and offer, um, a place for a person for a, for a young person to grow up um needs to stop i don't think that is a connection i would make yeah i agree and none of our listeners will find this surprising um none of our longtime listeners but i firmly believe that the best um video games are equal to the greatest works of literature and the greatest films and etc i mean they're they're yeah. works of of yeah Absolutely. I, agree. I just finished um, uh, Horizon um, Zero Dawn and then did Forbidden West and God I felt taking into that world I felt the storytelling was amazing the characters were fantastic um, female empowerment everywhere the main characters all the time are females uh, there's a lot of representation of people of color in that game I just I, I, I think video games can offer a place where you you find yourself and that is that is something that my characters felt as well in the book. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, my next question, Danny, is for our listeners. I already know the answer, but my question is, who is Randy Orton? And how many of your readers do you think will understand this? <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, gosh. Uh, Randy Orton is a WWF uh, fighter. He is famous for being um, quite buff but also not being the smartest person in the ring. Um, in the book, uh, my main character, Hussam, is incapable of holding names in his mind. Uh, if you introduce yourself, hi, my name is Jason. A minute later, he had forgotten your name, um, which is, by the way, it's a, it's a trauma response. It's something that the traumatic mind does. Uh, so I use that in my narrative. And um, but his way of navigating that is that he named characters around him. He named everybody around him after things that um, that are meaningful to him. So he named one of the characters Randy Orton. Um, and you know what? Google's there. Google Randy Orton. He is um, he's quite handsome. Actually, I find him really, uh, really a good looking man. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, RKO out of nowhere. Um, look at all the listeners. Uh, but finally, uh, Danny, and this question may basically be the crux of your novel, but how long does it take to get over a childhood trauma like the death of a parent if one can ever get over such things? And how does the role uh, that Hassam played in his father's death affect his thoughts about his sexuality? Mm-hmm. Those are very important two questions. I'm loving that you asked them. Uh, so I'll ask the first, I'll answer, sorry. So I will answer the first one, um, which is how long does a trauma last before it's resolved? And I don't think trauma resolves itself. I don't think you ever um, get over a trauma, a traumatic experience, specifically a childhood one. I think what you when you go to therapy and you you do your due diligence to to iron out the kinks in your mind, um, it, it doesn't erase the trauma. It just allows you pathways to 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 navigate that trauma positively. 
Uh, so Hussam, instead of destroying himself and everybody around him with sex, drugs and alcohol, um, he would hopefully by the end of the book learn uh, to navigate his trauma better. Um, and and that that comes from years of counseling that comes from uh, medication sometimes if need be um, that comes from resolutions that one person would take upon themselves it's a lot of hard work to reach a point where you um, you know how to smoothly navigate your trauma instead of being triggered by it um, so that is the first question. The second question is the relationship between Hussam and his role he played in the death of his parents, which is in the first chapter, by the way, there's no spoiler here. Um, and, and I think it tells a lot about why Hussam is quite homophobic, honestly. Like he's a gay man, but he is he has a lot of internalized um inter he's a gay man, but he has a lot of internalized homophobia that he navigates everybody around him with um throughout the book. And I think that that homophobia comes from the fact that he connected the death of his father in the very first chapter to his identity as a gay man. The father wouldn't have died if the father didn't find them making out on the rooftop which therefore it is the fault of their homosexuality that the father is dead. Um, and that's a, that's a terrible pathway. That is a terrible mind, um, mind trick that Hussam has to, to navigate. And I think throughout the book, the, 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 the cross of the novel, the base of the novel is looking at how Hussam is navigating that and, and will he be able to, to, to break away from that narrative or would he be stuck in it forever? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you very much, Danny. And thank you for writing this wonderful novel. I cannot wait for our listeners to have the opportunity to read it. Listeners, I have been speaking with Danny Ramadan, author of The Foghorn Echoes, which is published by our friends at Canongate. Danny, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. It was lovely. Once again, I would like to thank Danny Ramadan for joining me. Copies of the Foghorn Echoes can be ordered at www.explorebooksellers.com. I would also like to thank our sponsors, Libro FM Audiobooks and Coil Ridge Books. Please navigate over to Libro FM and put in the promo code BOOKIN, and that's B-O-O-K-I-N, to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstores in the process. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Booking.